0: 1792, April, May, June, three months in which the French Revolutionary Wars begin in earnest.
1: It's really not a military force one would think you'd want to go to war with, uh, but the revolution
2: nonetheless does go to war with this
1: force.
0: The Haitian Slave Revolt takes a turn for the worse.
2: It is utterly shocking uh, for and devastating for the Grand Blanc, these white plantation owners. And Russian forces intent on crushing the
3: poles begin rolling westwards towards Warsaw. You don't mess with Russia because it has immense resources and it can
0: crush. I'm Alexander Stevenson. This is episode two of the Napoleonic Quarterly and swords are being unsheathed across the European mainland. The Napoleonic Quarterly takes the epic conflicts of the 1792 to 1815 period three months at a time, and throughout the eight episodes of season one, which covers 1792 and 1793, we're looking at three main themes, three main narrative strands, if you like. Firstly, the turmoil of the French Revolution itself. Secondly, how the shockwaves from the revolution interplayed with power struggles elsewhere in Europe and beyond. And finally, how the scene is set for a military struggle that will last almost a quarter of a century. In this episode, we'll hear from Rafe Blaufarb of Florida State University on the state of the French military as war breaks out, from Christy Pekikoro of George Mason University on the Haitian Slave Revolt, and from best-selling historian Adam Zamoyski on the Russo-Polish War, which, as we heard in episode one, is it turns out the crisis that everyone really cares about in Europe. Throughout this episode, I'm joined by Charles Esdale uh, of the University of Liverpool and Alexander Mikabaridze of Louisiana State University. But before we hear their analysis of the events of this three months, here's a summary of the headline developments for this second quarter of 1792 as expected, on April 20th, Louis XVI issues a declaration of war against Austria, with France pointing the finger at Austria and accusing it of hiding French émigrés fleeing from the revolution, and of course those émigrés gathering on the border as well. Prussia, which is allied to Austria, also joins the war against France, setting in train what would become known as the First Coalition. There's also a French declaration of war which follows against the kingdom of Piedmont and Sardinia as well. Piedmont, of course, being the small state in northern Italy bordering France. has got Turin as its capital. But for now, Britain is staying well out of the conflict. In terms of the initial fighting, that's getting underway in Flanders in the Low Countries, with the French mounting a fairly disorganised offensive, pushing into modern-day Belgium towards Valenciennes which doesn't go very well. In fact, it gets repulsed almost at the first sign of contact with the Austrians and a second attempt gets pushed back by just a few Austrian counterattacks, really. In French politics, King Louis attempts what we might these days call a reshuffle of his ministers, seeking to replace Jacobin ministers with... with uh, relatively moderate ones, but he's thwarted by crowds of angry Parisians who invade the Tuileries and they humiliate him yet again by forcing him to give up his ability to sack his ministers. Now, there's a big development in Eastern Europe where we turn our attention to really properly for the first time now. The Russia of Catherine the Great invades Poland fairly opportunistically With Poland rather let down by its ally Prussia, we we, we can see Prussia happy to come to Austria's aid, but not so keen on helping out Poland. Which is unfortunate for the Poles, as it only takes a month or so before they are in full retreat on their capital Warsaw, having been defeated very badly near Vilna in mid-June. And in the Caribbean, the fallout from the ongoing Haitian slave revolt continues with the French-led government facing organised resistance from the island's governor and its Grand Blanc, the plantation owners. We'll be exploring the situation in the Caribbean in more detail in this episode, Uh, but first perhaps I might ask uh, Alex and Charles whether I've missed anything out, and um, thank you to Alexander Michabaridze and to Charles S. Dale uh, once again for joining us. So question of Alex whether I missed anything out and I suppose the the big question here is all of this is taking place in an international context where there is so much more going on.
4: Absolutely Um, and that's I think what makes uh, this period both so interesting to study but also quite frustrating because of so many moving parts. Uh, We tend to focus on the French declaration of the war, we tend to focus on the development of the first coalition But oftentimes what we're missing is international context. And the context here is crucial. Uh, This is the context of of continuing uh, and and in many respects intensifying rivalries between the great powers. Rivalries not just in uh, Western Europe, but uh, most crucially, in my mind, in Eastern Europe and outside Europe as well. So here we can uh, mention such... A uh, uh, core, uh, really, crisis is the crisis of the Nutka Sound in northwestern of, uh, part of North America. Uh, or we can talk about the crisis that is unfolding in Crimea that uh, ultimately becomes known as the Ochakov crisis or the conflicting interests that the great powers have over the fate
0: of the Polish state. So so much going on, and uh, we've got our sort of core narratives uh, that we follow in Europe, but 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 clearly so much going on elsewhere. Charles, did you have any
5: uh, views on, on on that summary and where we've got to? Absolutely. I mean, I, I would I would back Alex um, completely. A great European struggle erupts, uh, to be precise, on I think October the sixteenth, um, uh, seventeen eighty seven, when when basically Russia and Austria go to war against Turkey. And this sets off a a chain reaction, which produces a great crisis in Eastern Europe. And, And the Revolutionary Wars are not a French crisis in which Europe becomes involved. They're a European crisis into which France is drawn. It's so
0: funny, isn't it? Because of course you sort of have to start this uh, this this story of ours somewhere, but you're you can't just jump into a very busy, chaotic, not straightforward um, world expecting everything to stem from the French Revolution. Clearly, that's not what's happening, and I think that's that's what we're seeing with your your views in these early episodes. We'll be looking at Eastern Europe and the power dynamics there later on in this episode, but for our first interview, let's turn our attention to the story of the French military. And this is definitely worth taking a close look at because the French military machine is going to achieve some pretty astonishing things during this period. And who better to talk to about it than Professor Rafe Blaufarb of Florida State University, where he's director um, and uh, Ben Vida, eminent scholar in Napoleonic studies, Rafe's book, The French Army, 1715 to 1820, Careers, Talent Merit, saw him examine the factors which shaped the development of the French army as an institution during this period. So he's clearly the perfect person to talk to about the state of the army at this moment at the start of our story.
1: The French army that goes to war in 1792, it's an army that's been um, uh, undergoing a, a sustained period of reform um, the reforms begin in uh, in 1763, really, in earnest with the with the end of the Seven Years' War. The French military had performed really abysmally during the Seven Years' War, and uh, the defeats, the really humiliating defeats, had caused French military leaders to embark on a, a program of uh, uh, of thorough reforms. Those reforms focused. On the personnel of the army, uh, not the technology. There, the technology of the armies in the 1760s is precisely the same as the technology uh, at, at the Napoleonic period. There is no technological breakthrough. That means that improved military performance has to come by improving the quality of the personnel, their motivation, possibly their education.
0: And so this was what was driving the attempt to professionalize the officer corps at this time,
1: Exactly, it's a professionalizing drive that the uh, that the that the leadership of the French army engages upon after the close of the Seven Years' War. Now, the, their efforts at professionalization look a little different from what we would uh, call a modern professionalization effort. Uh, their efforts first first of all focused on attempting to remove. Or bar non-nobles from the officer corps. In other words, to restrict uh, the officer corps to nobles and preferably nobles from families with uh, with with a sustained uh, generation uh, after generation military tradition. It
0: doesn't sound very meritocratic. <laughs>
1: Well, it is in the way that the, that, that the military leadership, which is all aristocratic at this point, understands merit. Um, the point is, um, is to reserve positions in the officer corps for people uh, who have been raised from birth with the attitudes, assumptions, values uh, of the military establishment. People who, uh, what the army is looking for is young men who uh, have, um, they've attached their family honor, their personal worth to serving diligently, uh, even if that service involves boring routine tasks or non-glorious sorts of things. The kind of people that the military wants to get rid of are the rich sons of bankers or financiers who are just wearing the uniform for the status um, and, uh, and the glory, what the army wants is serious professionals, people who will actually put their heart into paperwork, for example, or regulations, um, even though it's incredibly boring. And, and the idea uh, behind this reform is to enlist uh, a noble hereditary honor uh, on behalf of, 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 of this kind of routine professional drudgery.
0: And it had made a difference by the time that the National Assembly established its military reform committee in 1789.
1: Yes, yes, it had. Uh, the army is uh, the army uh, arguably begins to perform better as a result of these reforms already in the 1780s. During the French intervention in the uh, in the American Revolution, French uh, French uh, infantry forces play the leading role at the decisive battle of, the, of, of that war, the Battle of Yorktown. And in other engagements, the French army performs uh, quite well. Uh, so one might argue that, that yes, uh, these reforms actually work.
0: So is this why, after the changes of 1789, when there was that military reform committee set up, the changes that did come through, which were basically making um, uh, this meritocracy applicable to all social classes rather than just the military nobility, that that basically meant that um, it, it was good news for soldiers because it, it meant that the ranks of the officer corps were being opened up for opened up very quickly.
1: The opening is actually rather slim, and that is going to cause a problem. You see, the soldiers, when they when they hear about the decrees of, of the National Assembly, opening the army to talent and merit, they think, oh, great, we get to become officers now. Uh, but when they look at the decrees, uh, they find, oh, well, actually, no, not really. Um, maybe we'll get to become a, a second lieutenant at the age of 40 or 50, um, but but we're not going to really make careers as officers, and we're never ever going to see the upper ranks of the army. Um, so the reforms uh, opening the officer corps are uh, they're not they're not enough for the the the, the non commissioned officers and soldiers. And guess what they begin to do? They begin to rise up in revolt against their officers against their noble officers who, have, who are still in place.
0: And when does that start to happen? When does that, that happen? Begins,
1: that begins to happen right at the outset of the revolution. In fact, you see signs of insubordination already in 1788, even before oh, wow. the official revolution. Oh,
0: really? So by the time the king takes flight in June 1791, um, when it's it's really, that's, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back when, the, the, when the nobles then start to feel like they, in addition to to, to the soldiers and the newly promoted lower-ranking officers, are able to say, "Hang on a second, we think we've just been fleed from our oath and duty."
1: Yes, that's right. When the the nobles had the noble officers uh, had been remaining in place from 1789 to 1791, largely to try to hold the sinking ship together and to stand as a bulwark. To protect the last vestiges of royal authority. Uh, after all, their oath, uh, their original oath, was to the king. Well, when the king flees the country or attempts to flee the country in June of 1791, the officers, the noble officers, uh, regard that act as releasing them from their oath, and they too finally decide, "I've had enough of uh, of dealing with insubordinate soldiers, risking my life trying to calm their mutinies. Uh, this, I hate this revolution and everything it stands for." Uh, I quit, and uh, by the end of the year, by by the end of 1791, um, 6,000, that's 60% of the existing office war, oh, has wow. abandoned its positions. They've literally run away.
0: What kind of a country would, what kind of politicians would consider going to war deliberately um, when 60% of their officers have done a runner?
1: Well, it, it is a little bad <laughs> because... You're, you're absolutely right to point out that when, when, when a few months later, in the spring of 1792, the National Assembly decides to declare war, um, the army they have to go to war with is in a state of chaos. Um, leadership is uh, unstable, to say the least. Officers are right. continuing to flee. Um, the soldiers um seeing their their old officers running away and taking up arms against the revolution are understandably loath to trust the few officers who remain yeah and the attempts to the attempts to um replace the the yawning void in the in the officer corps are only getting started um so and, and what
0: does the National Assembly try and do then? Because okay, small problem with sixty percent of the officers running away, but what about in terms of getting the numbers up of the soldiers themselves?
1: Well, ultimately, what the National Assembly is forced to do um, is to is is to take a two uh, two pronged approach to the problem of defending France and, and ultimately going to war. The first the first part is to try to um, restore order in the army. And the way that the assembly decides to do that is to try to rebuild the officer corps. And it does that largely by promoting uh, long-serving non-commissioned officers uh, to officer ranks, sometimes several steps at a time. For example, going from sergeant to captain overnight. Right. So the non-commissioned officers have a field day. This is when you see the the glorious, rapid, rapid promotions that the revolution is famous for. It is... Uh, these promotions are the result of the uh, 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 of the gutting of the officer corps. They're not the result of battlefield promotion. It's the result of the officer corps going AWOL and uh, this desperate attempt to re- reconstitute it through promoting non-commissioned officers.
0: Huh. Do you know, I hadn't ever quite clocked that before. You know, you read biographies of people like, I don't know, Murat or whoever, and uh, <laughs> they are rising up the ranks very, very quickly. But maybe it's not solely because of how well they're doing yeah
1: no no certainly not um there are cases of uh, uh, uh of future uh military celebrities uh actually encouraging uh revolt um in order to get the places that are going to inevitably be left. <laughs> right. so an exa- one of the leaders of uh, one of the one of the most famous cases is marshal davu future marshal davu uh, even though he he is a noble and an officer, I believe he's a second lieutenant in in the early 1790s. He decides to take the uh, to, to to lead the soldiers and non commissioned officers of his regiment in revolt against his noble colleagues and kicks them all out, and is rewarded <laughs> for his patriotism with rapid, rapid, rapid promotion.
0: Nice work if you can get it. Yeah. And and what about the national guard um, volunteers? Because th- th- these are being marched off to the frontier by the time um, by by the end of seventeen ninety one.
1: Yes, the, the the assembly realizes that the that the army is going to take uh, it's going to take some time to get the army back into shape, and so in the meantime to cover the frontier, um, the assembly calls upon uh, patriotic uh, members of the national guard in all of the all of the provinces of France to uh, to step forward as volunteers. Uh, assemble themselves as battalions led by officers they themselves will elect, and thus officers who can be trusted. Uh, And uh, these uh, National Guard volunteer battalions raised in every locality will march off to the frontier and cover the frontier um, uh, while the army is getting reconstituted. But that reconstitution, of course, takes a long time so that these National Guard volunteer battalions become a, a, a pillar of the French military establishment and provide a, a huge percentage, in fact, the, ultimately the majority of the military forces that the revolution is going to go to war with.
0: So to sum up, how, what state would you say the French army was in um, uh, when that declaration of war was issued?
1: I, I think it, it is in a very, very precarious state. You have a situation where um, the officer corps of the regular army is either quite inexperienced, at least inexperienced in being officers. They may have been good drill sergeants, but they had never uh, actually led, uh, led large formations. Um, you have a situation where the few experienced officers uh, left are all nobles and thus distrusted by their men and and also elements of the government itself, and you have a, a, a completely untested army of citizen soldier volunteers who uh, who 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 uh, may have zeal for the cause, but uh, are, are are certainly lacking in military experience, in military expertise. Um, And uh, it's really not a military force one would think you'd want to go to war with, uh, but the revolution nonetheless does go to war with this force.
0: So thank you to Rafe for that. And um, Alex, I don't suppose you happen to have any uh, particular example in mind of a uh, a noble officer who might have uh, faced a tricky choice in these early years, uh, he said, scratching his <laughs> chin.
4: <laughs> uh, let me think. Uh, is that... Uh... <laughs> A young man <laughs> who's uh, with Italian-sounding uh, last name, <laughs> um, indeed uh, uh, Napoleon uh, Bonaparte or Napoleon de Bonaparte. As he styled uh, himself until until what, 1793-94. Um, he's uh, as we all know, he's of uh, noble pedigree, and and even though the French nobility chuckled and and snickered at, at the Corsican. Uh, nobles of of Bonaparte mold, Um, he was indeed uh, 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 you know, could claim this noble background, which allowed him, and uh, I think that's an important point to make, it allowed him to receive the royal scholarship and go through the royal military schooling um, at the the king's expense uh, which effectively trained him as as an officer an, an artillery officer and when the revolution began These men, again, of noble pedigree, uh, had to make a choice uh, either to leave, as as Dr. Bluffard mentioned, many of uh, his colleagues would have uh, packed their things and left in 1790 and 1791, but Bonaparte makes an important choice in that he sees the value that the revolutionary process uh, offers him. So at this crucial stage, Napoleon is one of those noble uh, officers of the French army that make a decision, conscientious decision to stay, and what
0: a remarkable decision it turned out to be. <laughs> well, well, I think we've—I um, definitely said to myself, going to make a strict rule of keeping Bonaparte out of this uh, until he actually stands up. But I think rules are made to be broken, and he is a very good example. So, uh, of, of exactly this dilemma, and and um, Charles. One point that um, Rafe was making was around the volunteers of 1791, uh, but I think they were very different from the volunteers that uh, are then stepping forward in 1792. A very, a very different kettle of fish.
5: Yeah, um, I think it's very tempting to to focus on on the emigrate officers, uh, or and indeed the officers who don't emigrate. Um, but of course, an army consists of its rank and file. Let's look at the, the French regular army and what happens to that as a result of the revolution. Many rank and file French soldiers in 1789 were deeply unhappy, deeply dissatisfied, and as soon as a revolution breaks out and, if you like, the, the rule of discipline collapses, um, huge numbers desert. They just run away. So when the, the, uh, the revolution enters this period of international crisis in 1791, it really doesn't have that much of a regular army. But, but, large numbers of men come forward because they're starving. And so that the numbers of the regular army start to climb. But clearly more men are needed. They call for volunteers from the National Guard. You have the volunteers of 1791. They are propertied citizens, active citizens. And they are probably the most enthusiastic soldiers in political terms the Republic ever gets. But crucially, these men are only signed up for one year. Plenty of them think, well, actually, I don't particularly want to get my head shot off for for the revolution or anything else. I'm going home. But the point is that a new fighting force is needed. And so you get the Volunteers of 1792. The Volunteers of 1792 are different. They sign up for the duration of the war and they don't have to have property. They can be anybody. Net result is that you get this... Huge influx of new recruits, and they come forward because they're hungry, because they're starving. And so you have this fighting force which isn't necessarily infused by the ideals of the revolution. They are, in most cases, there because they are poor and because they are hungry, not because they are infused by revolutionary rhetoric.
0: Okay, so we'll stick a pin in that and um, uh, see where that uh, leads us to um later in well in 1792 and 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 the following year one of the most important storylines we are going to be following during this period isn't taking place in Europe at all the haitian slave revolt is a defining moment for the Atlantic world. I have to admit, I actually knew very little about it um, before I started this podcast. And if you were like me, um, then you're not going to believe the uh, amazing twists and turns that take place in this story over the years to come. To explain the backstory up to and including the second quarter of 1792, I spoke to Christy Piccaro of George Mason University. Christy is Associate Professor of History and French there, and she is also the rising President of the Western Society for French History
2: it is impossible to overestimate how critical the Caribbean possessions were to the European powers. Their economic prosperity as well as cultures depended upon the exploitative imperial systems established through those centuries. So alongside Brazil, the Caribbean was the most important plantation zone. During the 18th century, the French Caribbean, the Antilles dwarfed British and Spanish possessions in the West Indies in population and agricultural production. The French colony of Saint-Domingue, that uh, uh, after that became Haiti, uh, was uh, the most significant and profitable colony in the New World, producing no less than 40% of the sugar and 60% of the coffee consumed in Europe. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So, and in fact, Saint Domingue was, in fact, the world's largest sugar exporter and produced more sugar than all of the British West Indies combined. Yes. Um, and yes, and so you know what's interesting about this also is that nearly three quarters of um, the products imported uh, to France from the plantations in the Antilles were then exported to other European countries. So this a notion of the of the broad demand and the reach of plantation products and also the enormous impact of the Caribbean possessions for European colonizers.
0: Crikey. It just shows how important it was.
2: Yes, exactly, and 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 something that sort of we we get the feeling with these cash crops, um, we recognize um, these uh, the, the importance of, of the crops in these economies. But what we don't often talk about are, are other huge sectors of uh, uh, sectors of the economy and other socio political operations in France, Britain, and other slaving countries that emerge to support the triangular trade. I'm thinking of banks, yes. and financial. Structures, yes, manufacturing and commercial activities, the legal mandates, the insurance corporations who uh, <laughs> who pocketed much, much money during this time um, through the, through uh, ensuring the slave trade um, and and then the the movement of these products.
0: So during the second half of the the eighteenth um, century, then this mm-hmm. system was would it be fair to say it was completely entrenched across the region
2: absolutely and interestingly in terms of the dependence um on uh on enslaved labor uh, it only grows uh uh during the 18th century in fact in the in in, uh, in the french caribbean and for saint-domingue uh 1790 saw the all-time high arrivals of enslaved people in a single year 48000 enslaved people were brought that year um those who had Revived, yep, the transatlantic voyage. And this number is is probably low um, because records, you know, are not perfect for this period in history. Um, but, uh, you know, the others were brought as well illegally from, from other Caribbean uh, islands. So um, in 1790 on that island itself, uh, the enslaved outnumbered white colonists by more than 10 to 1% uh so uh this is this is what it looked like in Sandomang domingue in 1790
0: so you've painted a picture of a system that is entrenched and booming um at the time of yeah uh, you know, seventeen seventeen ninety or thereabouts so it sort of begs the question why what was about to happen happened then as opposed to not beforehand but i suppose the question yeah you know, the question is what 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 did happen in 1791 and 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 why did it happen then <laughs>
2: Yes, it's such a good question. Um, so uh, we need to remember that that even though this major slave revolt breaks out uh, in this, what is now understood to be the initial phase of the Haitian Revolution there in 1791, already small slave revolts began in the French Caribbean as early as July, 1789. This is because the enslaved began mobilizing themselves just like other groups across France and the French empire as the French revolution uh, began to unfold. Um, So, um part of this uh, uh has to do with um this big moment in August 26 1789 when the national assembly approved the declaration of the rights of man and citizen thereby sharpening questions of citizenship slavery freedom and rights in both metropolitan and colonial settings uh so this this sort of um it galvanizes both uh, a reactionary branch of, of white planters, often referred to as the Grand Blanc, in uh, who formed this uh, this society called the Club Massiac, but. It- also uh, engaged uh, wealthy mixed-race planters who uh, jumped into the revolutionary fray in order to argue for equal rights. Um, so it is it is these uh, wealthy mixed-race planters, uh, especially Vincent Auger and Julien Raymond, uh, who uh, start this uh, movement since uh, they first went to their compatriots at, at the Club Massiac and said, listen, we're all planters, uh, shouldn't... Uh, shouldn't, you know, we work together to to uh, uphold our rights and the slave system that they were all involved in. Um, they were rejected. And that is when Auger and Raymond went to the revolutionary government, uh, which was then called the Constituent Assembly. Um, and uh, the assembly temporized. And so Auger secretly returned to Saint-Domingue where he organized a first rebellion uh, uh, after the colonial governor denied his uh, petition to permit free men of color to participate in local elections. Right. So So when was that? When, When did that happen? So uh this happens uh early on in uh 1791 and right. uh, and uh Ogier, uh and the rebellion were 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 brutally quashed and he along with 23 co-conspirators were publicly executed in February Ooh. of that year. Yep. Yeah. So um, so so this kind of gets things started uh Julien Raymond continues uh uh, to push for rights uh, back in France. Um, but in Saint-Domingue, uh, a much broader uh, population of enslaved and free individuals uh, who are Black or Creole, remember that s- the enslaved and free people were of different races, mixed and uh and black at the time, uh, right. they had already begun the process uh, of planning for a massive coordinated re- uh, revolt. Um, the the main planning session that we know of just before the revolt happens on August fourteenth, seventeen ninety one, and yeah. the insurrection itself breaks forth on August twenty second.
0: And just to be clear, these this this bigger revolt, mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's got re- the revolution at its heart and those ideals, but it, this is so t- totally separate. From from the planters, it's it's the, 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 the is that is that right?
2: That's absolutely right. This is this is uh, sort of what what made uh, people so surprised at the brutality and the strategy and execution of the, of the revolt because uh, that that was the perspective of the white planters of the time. They were stunned because many of them believed that uh, enslaved Africans and people of color were indeed less than human, or at the very least incapable of such swift and well-coordinated effective uh, action and campaigning for their freedom. Uh, So indeed, this was uh, a group of uh, freedom fighters, allegedly about a thousand strong initially uh, in August. uh, But then by early September, it seems that they grew exponentially in number uh, and are estimated to have been somewhere between uh, ten and 20,000 freedom fighters.
0: And exactly how well, how brutal was it? I mean, we know it was very gory, but um, uh, how, how would you characterize their approach?
2: Yes, um, it's a really good question. Um, th- their plan was brutal uh, but logical, and I dare say comprehensible. Their aim was to annihilate the cruel agents tools and products of their servitude. This is, again, sort of a type of thinking um, with regard to the tools and the products that I think the planters hadn't imagined. So so these, uh, uh, these uh, people involved in the rebellion, they massacred white planters who had abused mm. them and exploited them and treated them as less than human. They destroyed sugar refineries and other industrial machinery so that agricultural products could no longer be processed. And then, in addition to this, they burned fields of crops so that there were no raw materials to be processed in the first place. So there's the sort of um, Mm, vital... Scorched earth. Yes, it's really a scorched earth... uh, 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 tactic and um and you know it is utterly shocking uh for and devastating for uh for the grand blanc these white plantation owners as well as mixed race plantation owners
0: gosh well i think we should jump ahead to the period of this episode of the podcast um which is looking at um, what happened during the, uh, the, the those early months of seventeen ninety two i mean there, there was a move wasn't there to to grant civil and political rights to free men of colour in March 1792. Was that an attempt to, to just try and, you know, placate and divide and rule
2: Yes, uh, it's interesting and it's significant in in multiple ways. So the news of the rebellion in Saint-Domingue makes its way back to Paris, of course, uh, much more slowly than news makes it anywhere now. Um, And you're absolutely right that there were already abolitionists in place, such as Jacques-Pierre Brissot and then sympathizers of the Free Colored Rights uh, Movement. And so they quickly... uh, uh, aligned themselves to to advance this strategic argument. And so what they claim themselves, these sympathizers and abolitionists, is that granting a citizenship to free men of color um, would secure these people as allies of the French uh, state and was therefore the best way to put an end to the raging slave revolt and reestablish peace, metropolitan mm. authority and uh resumption of the agricultural production upon which so much of France's economy depended. Um, so the argument wasn't necessarily an abolitionist one. Hmm, uh, yeah. It was one about maintaining uh, that territory, that crucial uh, possession in the Caribbean.
0: Yeah, it's p- politics, it's strategic, it's yeah, that, that that all makes sense. So how how would you characterize the situation, let's say, at the end of, of, of April, May, June 1792? It sort of died down a bit by then. And you've got this chap, um, Sonthanax, although I, goodness knows how to pronounce his name, who's yeah. been appointed...
2: Yes, exactly. So uh, things uh, evolve uh, that year. And Saintonex himself, as uh, I'm sure you know, uh, remains a bit of a controversial uh, figure. And just like our our discussion about this moment of April 4th, uh, 1792 and the granting of rights, his actions can be interpreted in different ways. Uh, Just to uh, be clear, who
0: who was he and and what was his role at, at this moment?
2: Sure. Uh, so, uh, Sontonax uh, is one of three commissioners uh, sent by the revolutionary government to uh, Saint-Domingue uh, to uh, I- implement the April 4th uh, Declaration of Rights. And right. so, um, so they arrive on the island and it's interesting that that Sontonax and etienne Polverel, who is one of the other uh, commissioners, were known to have strongly uh, opposed colonial racism. So they did uh, sort of choose specific people for this role. The uh, the third commissioner is Antoine uh, Ayot. So they arrive in 1792 and immediately restructure the racialized power hierarchy in Saint-Domingue, which really had crystallized since the period of of the Seven Years' War um, of 1756 to 63.
0: Well, clearly, they had to take some fairly drastic steps if they wanted to improve France's chances of
2: clinging on to Saint-Domingue long term. They built themselves networks in free communities of color and began assigning capable men to positions of authority in both the military and the administration. Um, so that's the question. Did they do this for ideological reasons yeah, as yeah, a type of... Yeah. Anti-racist action avant la lettre, um, or were they simply desperate uh, to uh, hold on to their positions and enforce uh, this law, uh, thereby fulfilling their mission? So uh, probably it was a bit of of both, a- and either way, this approach met with uh, lots of uh, conflict, um, and. Uh, fury from a white colonist as well as the new conservative governor of Saint-Domingue whose name was uh, François uh, Galbeau, um who was himself the son of a white planter, um, and so these people join together and create their own militia and rise up in armed rebellion against Saintonex. So we have uh, an active slave, huge slave inter- insurrection, and now we also have the Grand Blanc uh, 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 with the governor uh, uh, organizing themselves into uh, military forces uh, in order to fight against Saintonex.
0: A real messy situation by, by the yeah. middle of, of 1792. And, yeah, and, and I imagine if, if, it were, if you were there uh, in the middle of 1792, it would have been very hard to predict where things were going.
2: Absolutely, there was absolutely no way to go, no way to know that. Uh, nothing about this uh, was clear, uh, and uh, the events uh, that unfolded around the corner um, and the involvement of the British, the Spanish, uh, made things uh, even more complex. <laughs>
0: So thank you to Christy, and we'll be returning to her for an update on the situation in the Caribbean before the end of this season. And Charles, I have got it into my head that Saint-Domingue is very different from lots of the other colonies in the Caribbean, but how different exactly is it? I mean, I suppose geographically speaking, there's something very very different about about the island.
5: Yes, well, absolutely. If you're a slave on St Kitts, for example, or Grenada, for example, you were stuck on a small island. You had nowhere to run to. Your only options were grinning and bearing it. I mean, and, and engaging in perhaps in passive resistance and things like that. But essentially, living the life of a slave. Or you could turn to revolt, in which case you'd get killed very quickly. But there were revolts on on these islands because the slaves were desperate. In Saint Domingue, by contrast, there is no. Tradition of armed resistance. There's no tradition of revolt, and the reason for that is very interesting. Saint Domingue, yes, of course, it was it was an island, but it was only part of an island, and it was part of a rather large island. Saint Domingue is is the is the is the size it's the modern day state of, of, of Haiti, and it's the size of a of a small to middling American state. Now, a lot of it, particularly the mountainous interior, wasn't developed. And the result was that slaves actually had somewhere to run to. They could run away from their plantations, head into the interior, set themselves up as subsistence farmers. They had a way out, which they didn't have elsewhere. And it was a safer way out. Now, even more than that, you had a land frontier with Spanish Santo Domingo, which is the the. the central and eastern part of the island of what was the island of hispaniola which is where columbus first landed yeah now the spaniards had not developed their colony to nearly such a great extent There, there were far fewer plantations most of them were well away from the french zone and there was this this empty area which many slaves could could move into and so they, they, they escape across the frontier, set themselves up as, as subsistence farmers. And again, they've got a way out. Now, precisely because there is a way out, you don't get revolt.
0: Oh, I see. So this is like an escape valve almost, because there is a you, you don't have to go to that extreme. You can basically make a run for it
5: and-, and have a chance of some sort of life. And that is why the revolt comes as such a shock in 1791, because Saint-Domingue is not somewhere which is accustomed to slave revolts. So an
0: enormous shock then for the uh, French on the island, but also I imagine, Alex, an enormous shock for those in in france itself what was the view of people like um uh, in government in paris of what of, of the colonies um uh, what what did they think of what was going on um in 1791 and um and all the way up to the to the three months we're looking at now
4: uh jacques Pierre Brissot, my my favorite whipping boy um we we, we talked about him last episode and uh, he again, plays a very important role in 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 these events uh, as one of the most articulate spokesmen uh, of of this uh, Girondin faction. Um, and what we see here is, for example, one of the one of the uh, uh, roles that Brissot plays is that it was through his largely his insistence that uh, Leon Felicite Santonax, uh, who was discussed in your interview, Uh, with uh, Dr. Piccicero, was sent. Um, And here we see that Brissot and Sontanax's viewpoints were aligned. And um, they they both shared these abolitionist sentiments. Uh, And the response to these abolitionist sentiments is quite interesting within France, the metropole of France itself. On one hand, uh, these sentiments, and especially the dispatch of Sontanax, who um, in, in the spring of 1792, just in the period that we're discussing, Began enforcing the new law. These uh, developments caused, for example, a growing opposition of the colonial lobby within France to any further concessions. On the other hand, you also see that uh, this idealism that Brissot and Sontenac and others um, demonstrated in, in pushing for the uh, the uh, reforms and, and and equality in the colonies also served as a as a wellspring, right? It, well, it was matched by this wellspring of support among the abolitionists in France. Uh, the rhetoric that is used is oftentimes for, uh, compares the the conditions of French living in this perceived tyranny in in France, you know, tyranny or despotism of, of the government, uh, to those of slaves who are living uh, in, in, in the tyranny and despotism of the plantation owners in the colonies. And, and so there is this rather interesting back and forth between the supporters and the opposition of the abolition movement. Um, as, we, as we know, the white plantation owners and their lobby at this time were able to stop this full emancipation uh, of slaves, which contributed to the, uh, intent, to the intensifying of the rebellion in, in the colonies.
0: Next to Eastern Europe for another fascinating, slow-burning story, which is going to run all the way through this period, namely the fate of Poland. And who better to explain the background and indeed the developments in this quarter than Adam Zamoyski? Adam is a wonderful author covering European historical topics. His book's on 1812. Uh, Napoleon's Fatal March on Moscow, and Rights of Peace about the Congress of Vienna, and indeed his biography of Napoleon and are all well-thumbed on my bookshelves. So I was really delighted when he agreed to speak to me from Poland to talk about this critical period um, in that nation's history.
3: The problem was that since about um, 1715, Russia and indeed the other powers, uh, neighbouring powers, um, had begun to feel a certain proprietorial interest in, in the affairs of Poland and with the accession of um, Stanislaus Augustus Poniatowski. In 1763 the um, with tremendous Russian support and the support of the, the pro-Russian party in Poland um, that requires qualification. It was a party which wanted to Uh, reform Poland, turn it into an efficient modern state and realize that it could only do so in alliance with one of the three neighbors. And And so they're uh, plumped for Russia. They had uh, chosen uh, Russia, um, which to begin with seemed to be um, quite a good choice. From that moment, Russia, particularly Catherine the Great, begins to feel that Poland is... um, Her sphere of influence. Unfortunately, what then happens is that Prussia starts. Fishing in muddy waters. France comes in and starts a bizarre, trying to annoy the Austrians, basically. Uh, this leads to a rather muddled thing called the Confederation of Bar, but which is a, a sort of a, a completely messed up uh, attempt to uh, reassert Polish independence. Um, it leads to the first partition of Poland and a, from then on, a far more strict. Russian um, control of Polish affairs of what's left of Poland. Ah, uh, so that so that presumably is
0: what then drives the 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 Polish Diet in um, is it seventeen
3: eighty nine? Yes. So there's 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 this period between the first partition and seventeen eighty
0: eight. Seventeen eighty eight. Um,
3: yes. When uh, Poland is under. Very much under under Russian tutelage, the um, Russian ambassador has a sort of his own kind of almost throne in the spectators gallery of the Polish um, Parliament, uh, and um, everything is is really very much controlled by by Russia. The Patriots, uh, on the whole, decide to work with this, and they feel, well, okay, this is probably the best we can do for the moment. And they concentrate on education, on economic development, uh, on developing the country, creating um, factories, modernizing the agriculture, creating banks, and so on and so forth. And they do modernize the country to a very large extent, and things are beginning to look very, very good. Unfortunately, what again happens is that in 1788, when the parliament meets, a whole lot of hothead new patriots of a younger generation who have been reading too much Rousseau again. <laughs> it's the same theme again. Uh, decide that, um, why should Poland just put up with this? Poland can de- declare it, you know, it's, it's sovereignty and so on, particularly as Russia is tied down in the war with Turkey. So it's quite busy. And were they being egged on by the Prussians,
0: you know, say, come on, come come over to our side, we'll help
3: you out? There, there was a certain amount of that. And certainly um, when then suddenly 1789 comes along and France you know, starts undergoing very much the same sort of um, process as Poland is undergoing, i.e., you know, parliament has reasserted its voice and is speaking out saying, yes, we must do this, we'll do that, we'll do whatever. And yes. so suddenly it seems to the polls, you know, this great country France is now being reborn. Um, a new age is dawning. We're doing the same things. And isn't this brilliant? Hmm. And so they then do some quite silly things such as voting to raise the army, which had been limited by the first treaty of partition to a negligible 15,000 or something. Um, They suddenly said, let's have a 100,000 man army, which was a nonsense because Poland couldn't possibly support one that big. Um, But it was a a provocation to Russia. It was an open slap in the face to Russia. Uh, At this point, uh, Prussia really does begin to fish in muddy waters. It looks as though, uh, because Russia has annoyed Britain um, and Denmark over trade, uh, Britain, Denmark, and Prussia um, and indeed Holland, I seem to remember, start talking about an alliance. And the key thing in this is that Prussia will firmly decide to make join the alliance against Russia if she gets a nice big chunk of Poland, mainly the ports of Gdańsk or Danzig and um, the city of Torn. Okay,
0: so that explains why um, when it does come to conflict the following year, the Prussians fail to honor the alliance that they had agreed with Poland because actually they'd, they'd
3: had a better offer from elsewhere, which included taking a slice of Poland. There's a visit from the Turkish ambassador turns up in um, in Potsdam and – Um, The King of Prussia makes, um, the Prussians make tremendous play uh, making Russia think that Prussia is going to join Turkey and Poland in alliance against Russia. Um, And this, so, you know, Catherine the Great by this stage is outraged um, that all these people are, you know, ganging up. And, and 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 that's particularly and so she acts, yeah. Yes, and so she then it, um, and and there's there's been some interesting work done on this and that whole thing, um, the Prussian sort of flattering of the of the Turkish envoy, um, is a complete sort um, of it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's all play acting um, in order to make Russia buy Prussia's. Friendship more dearly. Okay, crikey! So there's, gosh, so there's really wheels within wheels here. There's so much going on. It's quite simply that Brusher is saying right. Um, if you want us to come over to your side and ditch the poles, the Brits, and the Danes, uh, you know, then um, then uh, we want a bit more. <laughs> Right. (laughs) Dear, oh dear, what um, a mess. This is a total mess. Yes. And of course, the Poles um, are caught in the middle of this. Um, There's too much wishful thinking and naivety. And they believe in the Prussian alliance, which, by the way, the king doesn't one minute. And he says, look, don't talk to Prussia. This is only going to make matters worse when we have to talk to Russia again because Russia is the most important because it's the most powerful. And a slight digression here. Very, very important this. And this is a thread that runs through right through to actually the modern day. there's There's a sort of dividing line in Polish society throughout the period from the 1750s or even earlier, right through to actually... Um, I suppose even now, um, mm. of those who think we can stand up to Russia, and those who think, no, you know, let's um, let's be either work with Russia or at least not get up her nose too much. Mm. And that dividing line is very interesting because it almost it can it can almost be detected by people who had spent time in Russia. And anybody who'd spent time even visiting the court of Catherine the Great or late Alexander or any time in Russia would come mm. back to Poland deeply convinced that you don't mess with Russia because it has immense resources and it can crush and right. it's, a, it's it's a lumbering great machine that can just absolutely... You know, demolish anything. So the um, king understood that in 1792. Knew you're that saying, very well, because uh, he time he spent time in St. Petersburg, uh, right? Uh, yes.
0: Whereas these young hotheads, the young hotheads hadn't. Let, let's let's just quickly um, sum up what what actually happened in in this quarter. Um, it was basically a pretty one sided invasion. I think is the best way of putting it. That um, Prince Poniatowski. Had a good go. We had about forty-six thousand troops scattered all over the place, but that the, they suffered um, a heavy defeat near Vilna, and it, it, it just didn't work out. Basically, they were they were uh, they, they were resilient despite their decline, but um, ultimately um, lost pretty pretty quickly.
3: Yes, I, I think they could they could have fought on had they had any ally anywhere, and also had the country being more developed economically. And I think that was the problem.
0: So Adam Zamoyski there explaining that the polls had pretty much run out of options um, in the situation in in this quarter. But perhaps it might be worth Alex just Jumping back um, and covering off the War of the Second Partition, which um, which Adam mentioned briefly, but just to dwell on it because I think 1791 was a was a big moment. That's what we're thinking of, right? When we think of the Second Partition the, the, and that war, uh,
4: absolutely. In uh, the in in Polish historiography, uh, this conflict is known as the War in Defense of the Constitution of Third of May, uh, which is uh, a crucial document. Uh, well, Uh, both from the constitutional point of view, but also from a political history. Um, And here what we see is the efforts uh, of a group of uh, Polish uh, nobles, um, and and nobility is is firmly in in charge in the Polish society. But here we see this um, effort to improve and modernize the Polish state, um, which has has fallen on its... uh, um, you, know, the harder, you know, the darker days and surrounded by the, uh, the, uh, the more um, um, ambitious and, and uh, um, kind of uh, um, opportunistic you know, great empires, as Zamoyski uh, correctly pointed out. And what, what happened is that starting in 1788, uh, in Poland, we see the convocation of, of the same, the, the Polish version of a, of a parliament. Uh, and this particular same is referred to as the Great Same, and it will uh, uh, stay in place from a, uh, 1788 to 92 and will try to mod- improve the Polish uh, state and military by introducing a series of changes. And one of the most crucial changes that it did was the introduction of this Constitution of 1791, uh, uh, of May of 1791 which tried to implement a, or create a more effective Polish constitutional monarchy, uh, bringing a greater e- political equality between townspeople and nobility uh, by mitigating some of the worst abuses of serfdom. Uh, and, and Poland, just like many parts of Eastern Europe, uh, including Russia, still had this institution of, 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 of serfdom. And uh, it also tried to um, suppress a rather pernicious... A parliamentary institution called Liberum Vito, which put this entire political system of Poland at the mercy of a single deputy who could vote down any proposition that he didn't agree with. Oh, so no, anyone,
0: really? right, anyone listening
4: <laughs> okay. to this, imagine a member of the British Parliament, a single member who can block any change, or a single member of the United States Congress who can simply raise his hand and say, Liberum veto, and it is over.
0: So this great same, this parliament, it was doing its best to improve Poland's effectiveness as a state. But I suppose doing so meant it was also drawing attention to itself. It's quite quite a high stakes move. The Constitution of 1791, by bringing these changes, by trying to strengthen
4: the power of this uh, of state and mitigating some of the abuses, also posed a threat to the neighboring powers, and probably none more so. Then Imperial Russia, led by Catherine the Great, uh, who immediately supported this anti-reform group of Polish magnates. So those who felt within Poland threatened by the changes, uh, with their privilege, their interest, their status being threatened, uh, formed the so-called Confederation of Targovica and appealed to Russia for help. And the Russian decision to intervene in defense of the what they claim to be these traditional privileges, being threatened by these new changes, uh, then initiates this war in defense of Constitution, which is oftentimes, again, one of those narratives that I think Charles and I have been uh, quite insistent on, of broadening, broadening of, of our horizons, not just focusing on events in France, not just on the declaration of, of of war by France against Austria and later Prussia, and then the fighting between these three powers, but rather more crucially, focusing yeah. on what is happening in Eastern Europe and specifically in, in Poland.
0: Absolutely. This uh, point about the international perspective is coming through loud and clear. But I suppose the other great point is that the polls at this time were split. And this was a point that Adam made, um, and he, he, he makes the point about there being repercussions between, uh, or, or perhaps resonances is a better word, between the, some of the dilemmas faced then and, and those faced in more recent times. But Charles, perhaps you might say something about the, the, the nature of the splits between the, the, the different groupings of uh, Poles at this time.
5: I think it's important to realise that um, the 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 differences between poles, which Adam Zamoyski points out, it's not just a, a tactical thing. I mean, yes, there were poles who thought that that you had to work with Russia, and there were poles who who thought that you could fight Russia. But that reflects a very very distinct split in the Polish nobility, because the great magnates don't want anything to do with the constitution of 1791, because that reduces their power in Poland. They're quite happy to have no Russian overlordship, because Russian overlordship guarantees their power in Poland. What the lesser nobility, and of course there are far more of them, what they want is something different, because they haven't got anything to lose really in a change to the system. They want a stronger Poland. It offers them more. And so what happens with regard to the Convention of Targovica, exactly as Alex said, the great magnates come together. They say, we don't want anything to do with this new constitution. Let's turn to Russia for help. And, and it is that split in the Polish, in, in, in the szlachta, as it's called, the, the Polish nobility, which, which really opens the way for Russian intervention and, and makes it so easy for them uh, to take over uh, and indeed crush the constitution. So the
0: triangle between Austria, Russia and Prussia with Poland very unfortunately in the middle, the ongoing turmoil in the Caribbean and the fighting on France's borders and the political inferno in Paris taken together, there is a lot going on in April, May and June 1792. So um, Charles Nalix, what do you both Think of the really big game-changing moments in these three months. There
4: are a couple of moments that
0: I think are quite uh, crucial. To
4: start with, the Great Journée, or uh, the Great Day of the uh, June 20, and, and it's a revolutionary day uh, during which uh, you see an uprising, a rather powerful uprising within uh, Paris that threatens the power of the king. Uh, the king has just dismissed. His uh, brissotine or the, the Girondin um, members of the government. Uh, the, the Girondin supporters did not appreciate this. And we have this uh, a powerful popular um, demonstration within, uh, within Paris. And it is, to me, important because it foreshadows things to come. And it, it, it creates the question, or it, uh, poses the question, of what's the future of monarchy in France. The other important development in my mind is is actually in Southeast uh, Europe, and that is the ending of the uh, five-year-long Russo-Turkish War, uh, Russo-Ottoman War, which uh, ends in the Treaty of Yassi. And this treaty confirmed a couple of things. One is the Russia's increased dominance of the Black Sea. Second is uh, Russia's growing interests in the Danubian principalities and not just interest but influence as well, since Russia acquired both land as a result of this treaty and the continued ability to intervene in the Ottoman affairs.
0: And I think, Alex, you'd say this is inherently connected to bigger issues unfolding in this period. Clearly, you've got the issue of the future of the Ottoman Empire. But presumably, Charles, it's also linked to the big issue that we've been really focusing on, which is the
5: Polish question. Above all, it releases... The Russians to do something about Poland, big time. Now, what moments would I focus on? I'd, I'd focus on two things, I think. First of all, an event, essentially the, the 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 few weeks after the French declaration of war, see the collapse of an important plank of French diplomacy. The French did not want. the the Brissotin did not want a general war they they made all sorts of noises but they did not want a crusade against the rest of Europe they wanted a war against Austria and Austria alone they set up the declaration of war in such a way as to make it absolutely plain that they weren't threatening the Holy Roman Empire and secretly they were engaged in conversations with the Prussians in what they saw as a perfectly um, serious attempt to get the Prussians to join them in a war against Austria. And those negotiations break down. Um, And that means that we are going to see a situation in which uh, France is beleaguered and it's going to be France on her own against a coalition. Well, that's the key question, isn't
0: it? That's the key question to ask here. At the end of this quarter, um, with uh, Prussians and Austrians heading towards the French borders and, and already the fighting underway, the prospects for the revolution,
5: it's got to be pretty dicey, right? Well, yes, that's the second point I was going to make. I mean, the the, the next issue which has to be faced is how the French are going to, to turn or if they're going to be able to turn this this polyglot assembly of 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 regular soldiers but many of them very very raw regular soldiers um you know the French and you see this when the French army marches into Belgium um in 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 April 1792 at the start of the war they they cross the frontier and you get the most incredible scenes. You get you get entire French divisions running away from a handful of Austrian cavalrymen. And several French commanders are murdered by their own troops on the grounds that they, they must be traitors. And, and it, it, you have a chaotic situation. Now, the big issue is whether the French are going to be able to turn this bluntly rabble Into some sort of army. Everything hangs on whether they can do that. And it's a very, very big question. Not one that we should we should look at now. But to me, that is the question of the issue um, at, at the end of April 1792.
0: Well, I've got a feeling we're going to be finding out whether this French rabble are going to stand or not in the next episode. So thank you to Charles Estelle and Alex Micabaruse. Thanks also to Rafe Blaufarb, Christy Pekikaro and Adam Zamoyski. Thanks very much to Ben Eckersley for all the music. At the end of this quarter... There are 8,388 days to go until Waterloo. I hope you'll join me for episode three, and among my guests in episode three will be Rafe Blaufarb once again to talk us through the first real do-or-die moment for the French military.
1: So there is definitely an air of uh, of panic, paranoia, uh, suspicion... Um, and also this kind of exalted patriotism uh, that it, that, that, that's floating around, and it certainly motivates the Federates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.